Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful as we gather together. Grateful to sing of your love, to sing of what you've accomplished, to sing of your greatness and your glory. And I pray now, Father, as we look to your word, that uh, you would impress all of these things on our hearts, these truths of who you are and all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we look to your word and see these things, that you would be glorified in us, and Lord, that you would motivate us in living for you, loving you, obeying you, that we would give you the praise and glory that you deserve. I thank you. Amen. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, we'll be looking at verses 27 through 31. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Um, I know in your bulletins and up here on the screen, you have this title that's here. uh, Boasting and distinctions are excluded. Uh, So the title is one of the last things I think about. (laughs) And uh, just how this week went when it came to getting the information out for the bulletin. I was like, ah, so I was trying to think quick. And how can I get the three things in there? I only got two. So really, I think a better title, and uh, what I'd like to, to really put forward as the title, not that it's all that important, is what becomes of boasting distinctions and the law? What becomes of boasting distinctions and the law? Now, as we look to this text this morning, and as we think about, too, what we went over last week, uh, in these texts combined, I think what we see here is what has been known as the five solas. The word sola means, is a Latin word that means only or uh, uh, alone. And these five solas, these five Latin phrases, came to sum up the teachings of the Reformation, though uh, they were not used in tandem together during the Reformation to sum up that teaching. Uh, Yet nonetheless, they are an accurate summary of the teaching of the Reformers who sought to correct the corruption, faulty practices, and perverted gospel of the Roman Catholic Church. And so we see here, as we think of what these phrases are referring to, what they teach, it's that we are saved by... Sola gratia, that's the first one, that we are saved by grace alone. And then sola fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola scriptura, the authority of scripture alone. Although, just a note on that one, uh, that does not mean that scripture is the only authority. Again, scripture itself presents us with other authorities, but what it does mean is that scripture is the only authority in which all other authorities must be subject to, must be in submission to and bow before. And then finally, the last of the five solas is soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Again, these sum up the teachings of the Reformation. And again, in what we went over last week and and what we see here this morning, I I think we see these things in the text. As we've already seen Paul clearly show that we are justified freely by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so right there, you already have three of the five solas. And then today we will see that there is no room for boasting in ourselves because of this gospel, because of the truths of these solas. Uh, There's nothing in which we can glory in ourselves. And so I would argue then that shows us and, and implies that the only one whom we can glory in, the only one deserving of glory is, again, God 
alone. And then again, Scripture alone. You may say, well, even as we read through this text, where, where is Scripture alone in this? Well, could say that when we get to the end, the last verse, one thing we do see here is that Paul talks about how the law is held up in this gospel and how the law then is our authority for us who have faith in Jesus Christ. And that is God's word. That is scripture uh, that we see there. Someone may argue that's a stretch. Uh, I don't think it is so much. But even if you think it's a stretch, nonetheless, just by looking to this text and pulling out the other four solas, what are we doing? But we are practicing sola scriptura. We are looking to this text because we know Scripture is our authority for our life, faith, and practice. And therefore, we stand on the truths of God's Word. We see as we study to learn God's Word so that we can submit to Scripture, because we know as Scripture itself tells us, as we are learning on Wednesday nights. So I did this this morning. I preached for Pastor Paul this morning. And so uh, I'm going to do this, what I did then here, put in a shameless plug for Wednesday nights as we gather with faith together and we are going over on Wednesday nights what is the Scriptures. We teach on the doctrine of the Scriptures right now. That's where we're at. And so come out as we learn about the sufficient Word of God. And it is the sufficient Word of God. That's what we look to. It is the authority for our life, faith, and practice. But what we see then, if we can take from Scripture those five solas, that summation of what the Reformers taught, then what that tells us then is that what they taught was the true gospel. It was right from God's Word. And we see that here again as we look to this passage this morning. And we see this gospel, and as we look and see this gospel, that's of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Paul then draws out some implications. And as we look at these implications, we see then how our lives should be affected by this gospel. So again, as we've been going through Romans, uh, we've seen Paul show the truth of the gospel as the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and that it is the power of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so in showing this, Paul began to demonstrate that all, whether Jew or Gentile, all are without righteousness, all are under sin and so condemned before a holy God. We saw as Paul then wrapped up that first point in his argument, showing the depravity of mankind, mankind all being under sin. We saw that. And so as we look and we see, as he says, as we look to the law to try and be declared righteous, looking to the law, we find we are not righteous. We find that we have not kept his law, but we have broken it. And so instead of being declared righteous through works of the law, Instead comes the knowledge of sin. Again, we said that's the bad news, right? And that's what we've been going over week after week since the beginning of October. The bad news that we are condemned before a holy God, unrighteous in our sin. But then last week we finally came to the good news, right? And as we come to the good news, we read what Paul says. And he says, but now. Again, mankind, every one of us, is without righteousness as the law makes evident. We are lawbreakers consigned to wrath before a holy God, but now. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So now in the preaching of the gospel, the righteousness from God is made known. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Again, both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Everyone is a sinner before the Holy God, for all have sinned and fall short of the holy of God or the glory of God, and are justified by His grace freely as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And as we saw last week, the only way that God could freely justify anyone is if Christ paid the price for their sin. That Christ had to come being the infinite person of God the Son, and take on himself the infinite wrath, offering himself as a substitute for all who believe in him. And so God sent Christ to be the satisfaction for our sins, to settle his justice for us. Otherwise, God could not be both just and yet still justify sinners who have broken his law. Because if God were to justify us, declare us righteous, and allow us into his kingdom while his justice went unmet, that would make God unjust. But God is not unjust. God is righteous, and God is holy. And therefore, his righteousness must be met. Justice must be served. And so Christ came so that righteousness could be met in him in our place, so that the penalty for our sin, that payment that was due, would be paid in Christ instead of in us. So God's justice could be satisfied, and you and I who believe can go free. This is what Christ has done. Christ came because God had forgiven sin under the old covenant for those who believed. And Christ came because God continued to forgive sin of those who believe. And so God put Christ forward as a satisfaction of his justice in his blood, so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. And so in this sense, then, as we said last week, Christ died for God. So Paul then takes this God-centered gospel, as we continue on in our text for this morning, and he draws out from it three implications. Three implications that come from the fact that God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so, if you would, uh, read with me our text for this morning, as I read, again, chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Then what became of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, as we said last week, how right and how good is this gospel that God has put into place? 
Because our pride always wants to point to ourselves, uh, to pat ourselves on the back for all of our supposed good works and all of our own accomplishments, to say, look at me. Our natural position is to seek our own glory and make it all about us. And that's because of our sinful pride. But God will not share the glory that he alone is worthy of. But again, it's our tendency to say, hey, look at me. Look at all the good that I've done. Look at my righteousness. Of of course I'm going to go to heaven. Of course God accepts me. I'm a good person. Look at all the good I do. That's our default position. This is why every religion except true biblical Christianity is a works-based religion. But when there is no righteousness to be had by any works of the law, by anything that I can accomplish, but instead trusting that Christ has done all the work for me, that he has satisfied God's justice in my place, then what is there for me to boast in? There's nothing. What is there for me to seek my own glory in? Nothing. And so we see here, Paul asks, then what becomes of boasting? If Christ has settled God's wrath, so I'll never have to face it. When Christ has satisfied God's justice so that God might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus... That's not by any works of my own, but I am freely declared righteous by his grace. What in me can I point to? Nothing. Not that I may not still struggle with trying to find something to point to myself in. Not that I I might, even believing this gospel, still fall into some self-righteous attitudes where I want to still stake claim of having some part of my salvation. But I need instead to kill any such inclinations that rise up in me and recognize it is nothing in me, but all in Christ. My standing before God is never in me, but only in Christ. And having been justified freely by grace as Christ has made possible by his sacrifice. So again, what happens to boasting? Well, Paul says here it's excluded. Or you could say it's shut out. It's shut up. There's no place for it. It's completely taken away. I can't glory in me. There's nothing for me to boast in. And then driving home his point... Paul asks, by what law is boasting excluded? Now, as we understand this question, it's important to understand what Paul is referring to here by the word law. Uh, We've talked about how what we've seen most often as Paul talks about the law here is that he's referring to the Mosaic law. And as we continue in Romans, we'll, we'll continue to see that is usually the case, although not always. And if Paul is referring to the Mosaic Law, if he's referring to the Torah, to the the first five books of the Bible, the the Pentateuch, uh, then as he contrasts a law of works and a law of faith, 
As different commentators have explained, this would be two ways of approaching the Mosaic Law, or two ways of viewing it, having two perspectives of it. But as Douglas Moo points out, this is hard to sustain, considering that Paul has referred to this righteousness that is by faith as being apart from the law. It makes more sense to take this word namos, the the Greek word for law, as referring to a principle. And so you have these two competing principles or systems, one of works and one of faith. So again, Paul's question is, is boasting shut out by a principle of works? Are works required that I would be justified? And does that then take away the idea of boasting? Well, no, that that can't be the case. If works are involved in my justification, then that actually gives me reason to boast. So that can't be it. And so Paul says here, no. No, it's not by works, but by the law or principle of faith. And why? Well, Paul says in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And again, that only makes sense. If I have to work for it, even a little, then I can boast in my works to the degree that I have worked for it. But Paul does not say that boasting is lessened. It's not that it's not only by works, but faith in works. That's not what he says. No, brothers and sisters, boasting is excluded because we are justified by faith. Justified by faith alone. Matter of fact, when Martin Luther translated verse 28 into the German language, he translated as that one is justified by faith alone apart from works. But the word alone is not in the original Greek. He added it in there to show that this is what it's teaching. And in that sense, he's right. This is showing that is by faith alone. Because if it's not by works, then it must only be by faith. And so there is no place then for any kind of boasting in me. But again, we have the tendency to fall into boasting in ourselves, uh, to finding some reason in which we can stand on something that comes from us and is in us. And sometimes we find that in our faith. And so we must be careful. Because even while we're saying that it's not by works, we can all too easily turn around and make faith into a work by which we are saved. And we can do that by not that we say necessarily that it's, it's because I, uh, I, not that we teach that our faith is, is our, a work, but in our attitude and the way that we might talk about faith, when we have to emphasize the fact that I made a decision, that I had to place faith in Jesus to be saved. And listen, there is truth in that. There is a call for our wills to be enacted. But that decision and that faith, first of all, is not really what saved you. Remember what we said last week. 
Faith is the vehicle through which all that Christ is and all that he has done gets to you, is applied to you, and credited to you. But it is Christ that saves. And what else about this faith? Well, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, that faith, along with every aspect of salvation, is a gift from God. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, we see that you are given faith. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, we see that you were appointed to believe. What else do we read? We see in Scripture that we were dead in our sins. And so even as we discuss about, well, yes, our, there's a, a call to our wills, we have to enact our wills, which is true, that we make a decision, well, sure. But even then, how do we make a decision? If the Bible says we were dead in our sins, because it wasn't mean to be dead. What can you do if you're dead? And if you're spiritually dead, you can do nothing spiritual. You can't respond to any spiritual stimuli. So what do we read? How do we make a decision? We make one only when God has made us alive with Christ. That's Ephesians 2 as well, right? And he does so by the power of the Holy Spirit. He makes us alive. And so he causes you from going from wanting to cling to everything about you and boasting in you to denying everything about you in order to cling to Christ. That you go from loving your sin and hating God to hating your sin and loving God and so then taking up your cross to follow after Christ. This is what God does. And the work and the power of the Holy Spirit to raise you to life, to grant you faith and repentance. We read in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. It says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look at this. See this. See how sweet this is. It is nothing in me. Even my faith is nothing in me. It's everything in Christ. It's everything that God has done. And so where is there room for me to boast in me? There is no room. What room is there for you to boast in you? There's none. No, all glory be to God our King. He is the one deserving of glory. He is the one in whom we must boast in. Also, think too, when we were going through the life of Abraham to prepare for this series, as we said, look, Abraham is justified, declared righteous by faith, right? And we're going to get into that more next week in chapter 4. And as we looked at that and asked, well, what kind of faith did Abraham have? What did we see and what did we say? We cared because it's the same faith that we must have in order to be justified. 
And as we were going through that series, I, I, I showed a quote from Abner Chow, again, looking at the faith of Abraham and seeing them, that faith is the expression of grace alone. And Dr. Chow said, the expression of faith is solidifying that it is all by God's grace alone. Again, we'll see that too in Romans as we we get into chapter 4, specifically in verse 16. It's all by faith and nothing of ourselves. So then all boasting is taken away upon the principle of faith. So again, faith is trusting, it's believing that Jesus did all that was necessary in our place. But again, we must be aware of the danger of turning faith into a work. As we fall into a, a legalistic position, as we fall back into our, our natural state and, and attitude sometimes. Uh, these are things we must resist and, and put away. Again, we are called to faith. God does not justify anyone apart from faith. And so it is, as John Murray says in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he said, God justifies the ungodly who believe in Jesus, in a word, believers. And that is simply to say that faith is presupposed in justification, is the precondition of justification, not because we are justified on the grounds of faith or for the reason that we are justified because of faith, but only for the reason that faith is God's appointed instrument through which he dispenses this grace. And he's right. He's exactly right. And so it is all from God. Salvation is of God from beginning to end. And then as we move on into verse 29, notice verse 29 starts with the word or. And this shows us that Paul is now pointing to another implication of justification by faith in Jesus. And so as we think about what Paul moves in next, we have to think about, well, since it's by faith alone, not by works, that means it's not by any works of the law, as we've seen and stated. And so it's not by circumcision. It's not by any of the ceremonies and rituals that God gave to the Jews. Or else, one might conclude that God really is the God of just. Israel, and no one else. But Paul asks here, was God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? And although uh, the Jews understood God as the one true God, they still held that since God chose them, God was specifically their God. He set his name on them. And even still, as Paul asks, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? The Jew has to respond by saying, yes, of the Gentiles also. Again, they knew that God was not just a national God like all of the other pagan gods were. The Jews knew that those other gods were nothing but idols made by man to suppress the truth that was revealed to them in creation in order to hold on to their sin and deny the one true God. They knew whatever forces were out there in false religions were demonic. They knew that God is the only God that really is. Even as God himself said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. 
Besides me, there is no God. The, the Jews knew that God created the whole human race from one man. And that God is the judge of all. Now, we've seen reading through the book of Isaiah that God is the judge of all nations. And as we continue in Isaiah, we'll see God's will and plan for the nations, not just Israel. So since there is only one God over all people, then there is only one way to that God. Only one way of salvation. And Paul then beefs up his argument here by referring to a passage that Jews repeated daily in their prayer. A passage that's known as the Shema. The word Shema is a Hebrew word that means to hear, to listen, to take heed, to obey. And the Shema is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That, that's specifically what Paul was referring to from the Shema when he says God is one. God is the one true God. And here in Deuteronomy, it was that this one true God was to be the sole object of Israel's worship and affections. But this idea also applied to the nations in that this is repeated in the prophet Zechariah. And this too, then, in context, must be what's also in Paul's mind here. As we read in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9, it says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name, one. And here in Zechariah, we see that all whom he saves, whether Jew or Gentile, in that day, they will be saved because the Lord, Yahweh, will have saved them. And so since God is one, since he is the God of all, Paul says he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Again, whether Jew or Gentile, or circumcised or uncircumcised, or anything else about anybody, there is no longer any distinctions. All distinctions are taken away. Again, all are under sin. All are unrighteous. And so all stand before God as deserving of his wrath and without hope in of themselves. There's no distinction. And so, too, there is no distinction as there is one God. God is not divided. It's not one people group to come to him one way and another another way. No, there is one God. And so there is only one way to this God. And that way is through the, and is in the person and work of Jesus Christ through faith. That's it. There's no other way. There's no other way, no matter what our syncretistic society says. Sometimes we hear people say things like, oh, there's only one God. But they don't mean it the way Paul does. Or how do they mean it? You know, whatever your practice is, and whatever you believe, and whatever you call God, it may be different than my practice and what I call God, but it's all one God. There's only one God, so it's all the same. No, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You do you. You're, you're what you want and what you believe, what, what, what your truth is. Because there's, there's, it's all one God, right? It doesn't matter. 
So whatever your way is, no. (laughs) That's not it at all. Instead, because there is only one God, there is only one way. One way of salvation, and it's despite anything about you. There is no distinctions. You must come through the way God has provided. And what is that way? Well, Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we read last week, we already mentioned it today again, God justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Not Buddha, not Allah, not Mary, not oneself, not Shiva, and not a Jesus who will overlook your sin because he knows my heart. What is that? When you hold up God's law to someone to show they have not held God's standard of righteousness, but they are an idolater and adulterer and, and liar and thief and all of these things that the law shows that we all are. And the response is, yeah, but God knows my heart. That just shows the pride of mankind that that very thought does not petrify them. should petrify us. It's just staggering that someone would would say such a thing. It shows that we don't really know what it means to say that God is holy. Yes, he does know your heart. And he knows that it is filthy with sin, just as mine is apart from his grace. It's not a reason to think that God is going to accept you. It's reason to fear and tremble before him and cry out for mercy. Because he knows your heart. There is only one way, for there is only one God. And you must come in the way he has provided. You must come on his terms. But again, the world denies that. What was that thing that Oprah said that she's famous for saying? She said it back in the 90s, but, but clearly from other statements she's made, she, she still believes it. When one of her audience members on her show asserted that Jesus is the only way to be saved, she said, there couldn't possibly be only one way. Does God care about your heart or whether you call his son Jesus? Yes. <laughs> yes. The answer is Yes. There is one God. And so one means of justification, one means of forgiveness of our sins. And that one way leaves us without any reason to think highly of ourselves at all. But instead humbles us as it empties us of self-righteousness, empties us of self-glory. That we would bow low before the one true God, acknowledge his lordship, and give him the glory that he alone deserves. And so whether Jew or Gentile, all are under sin. So all must come through faith in Jesus Christ, for only Christ has atoned for sin. Only Christ paid the price, so all who believe in him may go free. And so that's 
the first or the second implication. There is no distinction. All are sinners and have hope only in Jesus Christ. And then the last implication of justification by faith in Jesus is that the law is upheld. And I think, well, if it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, and then too for the Jew, it doesn't matter if you possess the law, if you've been circumcised. It doesn't matter if you keep the Sabbath or the dietary laws or on and on to all these things that made someone distinctively Jewish. If there are no distinctions now, being justified by faith in Christ, then Paul asks there in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? It's a good question. Paul has asserted, again, that we are justified apart from the law. So then is the law thrown out? Is it nullified? That then it doesn't matter if we obey the law or not. What does Paul say here? By no means. And this is once again that Greek phrase that is the strongest denial that Paul could say. By no means. Don't even think such a thing. Justification by faith does not cause us to overthrow or nullify the law. Paul says, on the contrary, we uphold the law. That's interesting, right? You say, well, then how does this work? If we're justified apart from the law, then how does justification by faith in Christ uphold the law? Well, on one hand, maybe this could be referring to the fact that in the law... Christ came and he has both kept and fulfilled the law. And so even as you think of the ceremonies and the Sabbaths and the sacrificial system, all of those things were fulfilled in Christ. They were pointing ahead to Christ. And so those things were the shadow and Christ is the substance. They're fulfilled in him. And so we don't practice those things. The fulfillment's in Christ. Could be that. I don't think that's what Paul's referring to, although it's true. That's not what Paul means here. Paul is referring to those things that have continued on. Those things repeated in the New Testament or not repealed in the New Testament. Uh, that moral standard that's sum up, summed up in the Ten Commandments. These things remain. These things are God's word, his law, his authority over our lives. These commands reveal God's will. They reveal to us what pleases God. Though we are not justified through keeping the law, but by grace, that doesn't mean that we then are free to continue to break the law. Some say, though, since we are under grace, it doesn't matter if we keep the law or not. It doesn't matter if we uphold God's moral standard. We can live however we want. Because it's all by grace. But that's just false. The new covenant work of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, now that we've been reconciled with God, that the law of God then is now written on our hearts. We've been made new. We've been made alive. That we are no longer who we used to be. Listen, it makes no sense to think that God saved you from your sin just so you then can continue on in your sin. That's ridiculous. 
It's illogical. God has given us of His Holy Spirit to enable us to strive to uphold God's law. And listen, I'm not talking about perfection with this. I think you know that. We all still wrestle and struggle with sin. But now, as God has saved us, and He has given us His Holy Spirit, He has removed the heart of flesh and given a heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh that beats for Him. Since we are new, we now have new desires. So that now the law is not drudgeful for us, but knowing that this is what pleases our Lord and Savior, since He so loved us to send Christ, and since Christ came and so loved us that He gave Himself for us, we then love Him in return. And if this is His will, if this is what pleases Him, well, I want to please Him whom I love. I want to please Him and do the will of the One who is my Lord. As we see what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, that it was nothing in myself, but all of Him. We are so full of gratitude and so full of love for Him that we want to seek to obey Him in everything He calls us to. We're so thankful. And so to this, what, what did Jesus say? In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, brothers and sisters, if you are saying that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone to be saved, let me ask you, is there a difference in you? Is there a change in you that shows that you've gone from loving your sin to hating it? Because you've gone from hating and opposing your Lord to loving Him. So now you want to live for Him. Is there a difference in you? Again, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about transformation. That you're no longer who you used to be. Is there a fundamental difference between you and, and the unbelievers around you when you go to work or, or family or whatever it is? If there's no difference, why? If there's no pursuit of holiness, why? If you are just numb towards the things of God, Indifferent, why? Do you not know that Christ alone has saved you? Do you not know that it is a nothing of you but all of God and the depths and the price that was paid for you, if you believe? Or do you not really believe? There must be a difference. There must be a transformation. That we have come to love our Lord and so want to do what pleases Him to show our gratitude and our love. Does this justification by faith in Jesus nullify the law? By no means. But rather we uphold the law. And so we have these three implications. The implications of being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And the first one is, there is no boasting in us. There's no room for pride. And so, brothers and sisters, if, if you need to kill pride in you, preach the gospel to yourself. 
Continue to be here in fellowship with other believers that will continue to point you to the gospel and the fact that it's, it's not about you. It's all about Him. Be in the Word regularly to see the goodness and greatness of your Lord. The gospel kills our pride. And so there's nothing that we can glory in but is all for the glory of God alone. And then the second implication, again, is that all distinctions are gone. There's only one God, and so only one way to God, as all, whether Jew or Gentile, stand before him as wretched sinners deserving of his wrath. There is all but one, there's only one hope, and that is in Jesus, no matter who you are or anything about you. And then finally, the third distinction is that we are not antinomians, which means that we do not throw out the law. We do not say that since we are under grace, it doesn't matter how we live. No, but because we are under grace, we care about how we live all the more. Again, not to be made right by what we do, but because we have been made right because of what Jesus has done. Not to earn anything before God, but because Jesus has already earned it all. We are so grateful and full of love for him. How could we not live for him? How great is our God? My friends, these implications show that there there must be an impact in our lives. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is too great and too glorious not to affect us. If we truly believe it, then we can't remain the same. If we truly believe it, then we can't go on continuing in rejection of his ways and his, his word towards us. But if we truly believe it, we live lives that bring glory to our God and our God alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. We're so grateful, Lord, for the truth of your word. And Father, how you have been so kind and gracious to us to reveal our plight before you as sinners under your wrath. And Father, what more? You're so gracious and kind to us to show us the way of salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. That you had sent Christ so that you would be the just, that you would be just and the justifier of those who have faith in him. Father, is anyone here this morning, this afternoon, that is not trusting in Christ alone? If they have made a profession of faith but, but really are relying on their good works and all that they have done of why they should be right before you, Father, I pray that they would recognize the, uh, the futility in that and instead know that their only hope is in Jesus Christ, that they would look to him and him alone to be saved. And Father, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, those of us whom you have saved, who you have appointed to believe, that we are your chosen people, Father, I pray that we would rejoice all the more in this great and glorious gospel and that we would be compelled to go out from here and live our lives the rest of the week and every day that you've given us to live for your honor and your glory, and that we would proclaim all of the great things that you alone have done. We thank you. Amen.